Hello, everyone. Welcome to You, Me, Them, Everybody. My name is Brandon Weatherby. This episode with Emerson Dameron is another, to me, very healthy, good conversation about an article that Emerson put on my radar. It's about the buzz, the buzzfeedification of mental health by P.E. Motzkowitz. The link to that is in this podcast description. If you want to subscribe to their Substack, you could do that via the link. Um, really enjoying these conversations with Emerson. Hopefully you are too. Uh, the last few are in the iTunes feed. If you want to listen to older episodes with Emerson, Emerson has been on the show since 2008. So if you want those episodes, you have to go to you, me, them, everybody.com. The first 12 years of shows are all there. The last year of shows plus a few more are on iTunes and Spotify. Another thing you can do at you, me, them, everybody is consider donating to our Patreon. We don't have a Substack. We have a Patreon account. Please consider donating if you have the means. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Emerson. Why did you want to talk about the buzzfeedification of mental health by P.E. Miskowitz? It actually goes way back to a discussion that we had about podcasts maybe 10 years ago. Uh, we <laughs> so were, you've been sitting on this for a while. It, yeah, it's been germinating. Uh, you, we were trading recommendations and one of the ones I recommended to you was the mental illness happy hour. Yeah. And your response was, yeah, it's pretty good. But some, I, at some point I've heard enough about people's childhoods. I stand by that. Yeah, that's, that's a fair remark. And it got me thinking you know, about kind of the limits of self-inquiry and personal growth in the framework of uh, mental wellness. And ever since then, you know, a lot of what I write is kind of therapy adjacent. Mm -hmm. Like I don't have the same, uh, barriers in my mind to taking stuff that normally I would just talk about in therapy and talking about it in my writing or in whatever creative work I'm doing. But at some point I think you end up chasing your tail. Yes. Uh, that or there's one of these days I'll graduate and I'll either be enlightened or I'll go completely insane. But I think it's more likely that you just end up going around in circles. If you use the same modes of self-inquiry and the same frameworks of, Oh, there's this thing that's wrong with my brain mm -hmm. and I have to kind of see the world in the context of that. Does that make sense? 100%. I have notes written down for this piece, and there's like five, at least five paragraphs that are going to be cut without losing anything. Yeah, that's one of the things with Substack. Like a lot of people that used to have editors mm -hmm. are starting their own shops, and you could kind of see how they used to benefit from having somebody else look at their stuff before they had published. So I'm number one, I want to say I'm very glad you wanted to talk about this article. Uh, I love having conversations based around stuff like this. I think there's a lot of worthwhile takeaways from this article. But I clearly, not clearly, I have a lot of issues with it. And I don't think I'm alone. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Like, for instance. Well, the writer says my problem with it 
and the writer claim and like knows the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. This is part of this. Uh, one of the pieces, the internet is filled today with people defending their micro identities. We yell at each other all day on Twitter about whether any given sexual, psychological, or gender related, related identity is valid. And that's false. Some people on Twitter do that. And when not everyone, exactly not everyone, but the people that there have some people that have, have never brought this up at all and only want to talk about cars. Yeah, exactly. But if you look at the people that are most likely starting a stub sack or a journalist in general, yeah, that's Twitter. You are a hundred percent right, but also you get to curate that. So yeah, you can, um, you can mass unfollow people. if exactly. something is getting on your nerves. I've done that. And it, it is like the sun coming out from behind the cloud. And the writer knows this is the problem because a few paragraphs later, as you may or may not know, hopefully you are not on Twitter and can teach me how to stop being addicted to it. I actually have the opposite problem. Like, I would like to tweet more just because I think it's a good, uh, in theory, it would be a good way to to test ideas and float jokes. And I would like to commit to it enough to have more followers, but Mm -hmm. I've just never really gotten locked in. I understand it, and I know who it's for, and that's wonderful. And the older we get, the less certain te- means of technology are for us. And that's okay. <laughs> and the Twitter is meant for people, I'd say, ideally between the ages of like 30 and 50. And it will slowly age out and will be replaced by newer things like a TikTok. And we don't need to participate unless we are getting enjoyment from it. So are you getting enjoyment from Twitter? Here and there. Okay. Uh, it's I I it's, I've definitely seen news break there before, but interesting when I take up some time off from any of that stuff, I go on and ninety percent of the stuff that they're talking, about, I have no idea what it is, and I never hear about it again <laughs> in any other context. Okay, that's fair. So once the pandemic hit, I changed my Twitter dramatically and. I've only really used it for job opportunities, grant opportunities, and following writers whose work I enjoy that I might want on this show, and that's it. And I think that's it's excellent for that. I mean, you can definitely connect with people and opportunities with Twitter that you never would have had access to otherwise. Well, that's it's just that at some point you're going to make an ass of yourself <laughs> and alienate. Everybody. That's the thing. I've also not you, but I, no, I, I definitely would. I would two things about that. Number one, I was making those connections due to the talk show. But without Twitter, without Twitter. And that's what the pandemic has taken away from me and oh yeah because you used to hang out in bars and do like you would get up on stage and meet people that way yeah like i had a forced essentially a forced blind date with a stranger every month for the last decade plus and most of them didn't go well but that's okay because even if one a year is good that's 12 10 or 12 new friends and that's huge oh yeah and I think it, that you that brings up an interesting point, and we're getting a little off topic. But I think the uh, migration of comedy onto the internet means that a lot of, and this is horribly reductionist, but a lot more 
uh, new trends in comedy are coming from uh, people that don't go out and engage with other people mm-hmm. just because the less you go out and engage with other people, the more time you can spend doing comedy on the internet by and large, which is kind of the opposite of how it used to be when it when there was like connecting with an audience was kind of one of the requirements. Yeah. But I also think that that's not necessarily a bad thing because the barrier to entry oh, no. was so high for so long and it's great. Yeah. I mean, there, it definitely has a lot of upside. So back to this piece, once again, I'm very glad you asked me to read um, early in the piece. Uh, the writer alludes to the guy's, article or sorry the guy's like thesis from that he wrote in 96 how does how does it actually refer to, i want to look it up so i get it correctly um a paper and in 1996 as an undergrad at uc santa cruz and this is um from the piece as capitalism decodes and deteriorizes it reaches a limit at which point it must artificially re-territorialize by augmenting the state apparatus Peretti writes in other words capitalism must give us things to make sense of the world because capitalism has taken all of our inherent internalized sense of self and community away. That's a very interesting thought, but I want to know Mm -hmm. how does that relate to life during a pandemic? In my experience uh, of the pandemic, um, the, it has taken away enough kind of of those random social collisions that you're talking about where I would go take a class or I would go to an event Mm -hmm. or just go hang out somewhere and meet someone in person and imposed a little bit more artificial structure on that. Mm -hmm. Like the places where you're more likely to run into people on the internet tend to be structured around a topic more narrowly. The, uh, the parameters for discussion are more well-defined and the context in which people relate to each other is going to be more specific. For instance, uh, I could go to a, you know, I, I could take a class on beekeeping and if I hang out after the bees are kept, I could talk to those people about anything under the sun. Sure. Whereas if I join an online support group for people with anxiety and depression, uh, it's the discussion is going to be about that. And there may be opportunities to talk about other things, but it's going to be a little bit more circumscribed and more likely to reinforce the identity issues that kind of brought us all together in the first place. I think that's a good point because this is a, this piece is essentially about identity issues. Oh yeah. It's, I think just to boil it down for anyone who hasn't read it yet, it's um, how people are encouraged to define themselves by, uh, mental health issues that are that tend to be seen as innate mm-hmm. like there's that your brain is chemically offbeat uh, and you know that's obviously not doesn't make you abnormal or anything bad but mm-hmm. there's something about you that is not really under your control and it's going to stay that way. You know, it's always been that way. It probably always will be. And 
a lot of how you describe your life in those spaces is is based on your adaptations to that thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good summary of it. And, and I think what Moskowitz is saying is that things are more fluid. Yes. And, you know, and it has a lot to do with context. Well, here's uh, the, the piece. You know, obviously, capitalism is the big boogeyman in, in this world. But it's, you know, you could be anxious in response to certain issues that are going on when you're a little kid. And then you could be depressed as a teenager is an antidote to anxiety or because there's your parents are getting divorced or there's depressing stuff going on. And then uh, you could have some other classification later on that has more to do with context and that it, it would be we would. It, it would be in some ways more challenging, but more rewarding to see things from that perspective. It's really boils down to like very simple, like, Hey man, just be, don't be a dick to other people. <laughs> be cool. As yeah. I don't, don't worry too much and don't be a dick. Yeah. This is the paragraph that I wish was the takeaway but it's sort of buried in the middle. The much more obvious answer is that mental disorder, while influenced by genetic factors, are largely caused by trauma and context, and that oppressed groups of people experience way more trauma under capitalism and are way less able to navigate the context of American society because it was built without them in mind, and in many cases to intentionally harm them. I agree with this sentiment. Yeah, Therefore, pretty much. why isn't that the entire piece and just delete everything related to Twitter and outside? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Because if you just focus on this thing, who cares what anyone else is tweeting about? Because we all know, not we all know, I think that I know, and this writer thinks that they know, that people are just defending their given identities. But by saying this, it has nothing to do with anybody else. Just take this. Yeah, Moskowitz inadvertently started a turf war on Twitter. Uh, there, there was a remark about how ADHD is a context-dependent mm -hmm. thing, and um, then there was a dog pile from the ADHD community on Twitter uh, about how you know that's um, challenging their the parameters that have been set up for that discussion. And I think that's what touched it off. So part of it was kind of a, not, a, you know, defending it, the argument from that. And I get that. Well, I get it. Who cares though? How is, it, <laughs> how is that helping? Possibly not. <laughs> You're, you bring up such beautiful, wonderful points that could help anyone or maybe make one person's life a little bit better by just reminding themselves that like, Hey, there's a lot of context here that maybe all things is in a blanket statement, but then you go back to essentially defend yourself on Twitter because of a blanket statement you made. So maybe the big takeaway is that people need editors. <laughs> yeah, maybe it might be that simple. Maybe I'm also occasionally it's a good idea to show your article to somebody and ask them what they think about it before you publish it. But I also understand that like what I took away from that piece is not at all fun and not something you'd want to tweet about. It's not going to get you any likes because it's a complex idea that essentially encourages compassion and understanding. That's not something you want to fight over. So of you course could frame it negatively. Uh, you could tweet. 
I believe in compassion and people that don't are stupid. Yeah, but like, come on. And, and that, but that might get some, like the anti-compassion lobby could show up and get, you could get some friction and some attention that way. I had a really nice chat yesterday with this writer that uh, essentially compared current Chappelle to Mark Twain and the most recent Chappelle special that came out last week and the COVID stuff and the Comedy Central stuff. And it was wonderful. And the biggest takeaway I had from having that conversation and reading the article was I'm seeing way too many similarities with the people that stormed the Capitol on this January 6th and Dave Chappelle. And it's not because they believe in the same things, but because very few people seem that at, at a certain level seem to ever be able to say I was wrong about something. Yeah, that's hard to do. And I think that that's... Oh, go ahead. I think that that little thing is what I'm craving so much from anyone in position of power. And in, an, in a maybe not in an odd way at all, what Biden is doing right now is making me feel so much more hopeful because even he has said so many times throughout his career, like, oh, I was wrong on this. Like, I the Anita Hill hearing, I was wrong. I made a mistake. I'm going to try to be better now. And that's a wonderful teaching moment. That being said, for some more context, because of 2020 being a year, I have multiple Mr. Rogers calendar. I have a wall calendar and I have a page a day calendar. So every day I'm nice. reading essentially like <laughs> dime store <laughs> philosophy from like a super basic uh, standpoint, but it, it's that kind of stuff. And having a small child, obviously like you're going to make a billion That'll mistakes. You that's okay. And the whole point of this thing, the whole point of me talking to you and anything else is to acknowledge like, Oh, I was wrong about that. And now maybe my brain's going to fire in a different way and I'm going to feel less wrong about something. And it's a new thing and it's a wonderful thing. And now we can learn from each other. And I don't get literally any of that from any Twitter interaction I've ever had. Well, I think Twitter is primed to entrench people. Uh, and one yeah, of the I agree dangers of, 100% agree. of writing about your uh, your own trauma or even just your take on the world is that it has a tendency to get you fixed in that position mm -hmm. because it, you know you could write something that's kind of confessional or that's very opinionated and that could float around on the internet for a while and you could kind of get on with your life and then four years later you're you've shifted on a lot of things and but people still see the old version of you and that's not really allowed to just disintegrate into the ether it's fixed and you're going to be judged based on that hold on and hold i think on. that's a concern that people have about. i gotta stop you there the, i yep. think that's based in selfishness i think that the majority of people no one cares what they say and if they have a changed position a day later a week later a year later no one cares. And that's okay. That's the thing I think people are maybe more obsessed about than ever before. Because there's this document of a thing where, oh, I tweeted this thing 10 years ago. Who cares? Delete it. Like, I have all my tweets deleted after three months because I don't even care. Like, just nothing good's going to come from an old tweet. So fuck it. Who cares? Yeah, maybe the idea that you can't move on is more toxic than anything else. Yeah, like maybe it's but I, I think it does writing something and putting it out there 
does at least my experience is that sometimes it makes me feel like I'm obligated to defend that. Even I if felt really like that not. for a long time until I realized no one gives a shit. Yeah, most people are thinking about themselves as they should. The we all have to get through the day. <laughs> like, yeah, that's, that's not literally a bad how thing. it works. There's a horrible columnist in Chicago. Is it John Cass? Is that his name? Yes, John Cass. Horrible. To me, he represents everything that Chicago is not. Yet he has maybe the biggest column right now because he works for the Chicago Tribune, even though that city is like 90% Democrat. It makes no fucking sense to me. So I used to like think I was going to, I would always mention him on the WGN shows I did in a negative way, but like, what's the point of this? Like, I'm not connecting to anybody. He's not going to be affected in any way whatsoever. And all I'm doing is reading a bunch of stuff that I know is wrong and evil. So this is just polluting my brain space. And I'm trying to, I don't have an answer for this. And maybe this is my version of the author, the piece of the buzzification to mental health. Like, why am I going back to that well, even though I know that well is incredibly polluted and there's no way for me to fix that well? Yeah, I think his, the reason he's so um, against a lot of what, I would agree with you that Chicago is for is that his job is being a hot take machine. Yeah, but you could have the exact same hot takes and flip them and they'll be just as hot. You would just be pissing off different people. Yeah. And you'd be pissing off the right quote unquote right people because that would be more reflective of your city. And if you believe in social justice, that's okay all the time. It is harder to have a really hot take based on compassion for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> it's a lot easier if you're a reactionary. But so so your prescription is just to walk away from this stuff as much as you can. Yeah, walk away from the identity stuff. Like, well, that includes back to the piece. Like, I totally understand people that have X, Y, and Z, and they want to make it very clear that they have X, Y, and Z, and that their experience with X, Y, and Z is entirely correct because it's their experience and how dare you tell and they want to make the world aware of their unique challenges exactly. in hopes that more understanding will lead to a more equitable world and i love that idea but i think in the reality it's the opposite and it's making it a more segmented world yeah i think it can be a little bit of both but i definitely see the segmentation going on in a weird way not a weird way in a very obvious way i would always hate when i would go to um, the Melrose, it was like the Melrose Park Fun Fest. It's a suburb in Chicago, Illinois. It's entire, it's not entirely, but it was predominantly Italian. And like my great uncle or whatever, like ran the stage, and it would be like Sinatra and Dean Martin impersonators, and like a lot of Italian pride stuff. And it's really no different than any other ethnic festival, like an Irish festival, whatever. And I used to think that that was inherently racist. Because how dare you be proud to be an Italian? You're in this country that the whole point is like it's a blank slate and you're gonna you're benefiting from your European whiteness. I'm benefiting from my European whiteness. Let's maybe not brag about being Italian and just enjoy the food and like leave it at that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think people are mostly there for the food anyway. Yeah, and no, it's just a, a lot of those identities just give people an excuse to connect with each other. I can't point. really to a point, but hold on. I'm, I'm a you, wasp, so I blend in really easily, <laughs> so I can't really talk. Did you ever see the... It came out in October. It was called City So Real by Steve James. No, I haven't seen it. It's the best thing I watched in terms of documentary, long-form stuff in all of 2020. And 
during the height of the pandemic and the protests over the brutal murder of George Floyd, a lot of tribalism came out throughout the city. And it wasn't just like old school Italians trying to connect. It was pretty much across the board. And it's that kind of thinking that was once just a prideful thing of the old country is now a bad thing because we didn't realize we're all here together in a, in a soup. Does that make sense? Yeah. It, the pandemic was disappointing in that way. Yeah. At least from what I saw here uh, during the first maybe six weeks, it seemed like people really came together. Uh, like the people picked up on the masks and the social distancing really quickly. And there was a kind of um, spirit of community of people working together to try to get through it. And then that turned on its head over the summer and things got really factionalized. Yeah. So maybe it was a backlash to that. I don't know. I think that a lot of it had to have to do with people being stuck at home and oh, yeah. being on the internet all the time. Which is relates to this piece. Yes. We made it. <laughs> what was your takeaway from this piece? I thought it was interesting in the context of my own ongoing reckoning with mental health mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, I was very anxious as a kid and kind of one of the ways that I dealt with that was by eventually identifying as someone with depression because I was so anxious for so long that I kind of burned out my circuits and I got really depressed and getting that diagnosis was kind of empowering at the time because I felt like, you know, not only is this not my fault, but here's this thing that I am. And there are other people that are also this thing and I can be part of a group with those people. And I think that ended up being constraining over time. How so? Uh, I think as I, as time went on and a lot of, you know, things changed. The context was different. I wasn't a teenager anymore. I wasn't stuck at home in Western North Carolina. Um, it, I think it may have made it more difficult to take advantage of some of the new opportunities that I had when I was in college and beyond. And it's kind of the same thing I'm doing now with dealing with alcoholism. Uh, I was a problem drinker for a long time. We talked about that. I've been pretty open about it. Um, and how, you know, declaring that you have a problem with alcohol or substances or other addictions opens up a world where you can get some support with that. And you can go to meetings and hang out with people who are not drinking anymore and who a lot of their lives are based on what they've learned since they stopped drinking. And you can get a lot of insights and support, which is especially great if your life has fallen apart and you need to be part of a community that will come together pretty quickly to have your back. However, there are things about AA in particular that put me on notice like the notion that the one drink, one drunk thing, where if you have just a little bit of alcohol, the idea is that you will go on a tear. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and you'll be you'll just go straight back to the hell of your own making that you were in before. And what they found statistically is that that's more likely to happen if you're in AA. Mm-hmm. That people that have a history of AA, if they have one drink again, are more likely to go on a binge. Whereas if that's not your framework, or if you see things as being a little bit more fluid, you could just see it as, oh, I screwed up. It's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'll sleep it off and go back to dealing with my problems in a healthy way once I get it out of my system. And, you know, it, it, AA works for some people and maybe they're right about a lot of things. I have been a good boy and I haven't tested this, but um, it just, it made me think, you know, having group support is really important. I mean, as much as the it's the American way to convince ourselves that we can go it alone, that's just not true at all. And it's very dangerous. But I think be identifying with part of a group that has certain constraints and certain circumscribed ways of talking about things can be dangerous too. And that's that was my big takeaway from this. Yeah, it's hard to disagree with that. I'm I'm grateful that you put this on my radar. Thank you. Yeah, anytime. You, Me, Them, Everybody is made by me, Brandon Weatherby. Our theme music is by Daniel Knox. Our art is by Jillian Ron. You can hear all 13 years of shows at you, me, them, everybody.com. If you're listening to this in Spotify or on iTunes, the last year of episodes are available uh, with some sprinklings of the other ones. If you want the rest of the catalog, which features over 700 episodes, you, me, them, everybody. Dot com. Our Patreon page is on our about page. It's all there. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff. At sign YMTE. Thanks for listening. I'll hug the places that you've been sleeping. Friends and family I'll be keeping. Won't